What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You all set for retirement, mate? Yeah. My sis will look after me. Claire, did you win the lotto? Not my sister. My C-Bus Super Income Stream. Sis! Right. With as little as $80,000 super, Sis works with the pension to provide a steady paycheck even after you retire. C-Bus. For all of us. To consider if C-Bus is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word, your weekly wander into all things cricket with Jeff Lemon and very shortly Adam Collins. Plenty to touch on on the show today. The WBBL uh, regular season is done. Finals are coming up. India just about ready to go in Australia for the white ball series coming up. Uh, a fair bit to focus on with the World Test Championship agreements being made this week about how that's going to work in terms of the share of points and the hope that that a final can still go ahead next year. Most importantly on the show today, Peter Siddle, in an episode to be released on his birthday, on his birthday, um, Peter Siddle has joined the final word for a wonderful chat with... uh, we headed off to near an hour and a half by the time we were done. Um, a lot of laughs, a lot of reflection and uh, a, a wonderful amount of time spent with someone who we've enjoyed watching so much and who's always had the biggest smile on his face going around in Australian cricket. So that will be coming up shortly after we pop puri our way through the themes of the day. Uh, I'm, I'm at one end, Adam's at the other, and you're still going to get to Australia, it seems, despite about 19 flight cancellations so far. Yeah, that, that's right, Jeff. I should say before we go any further, it's 5am in Sydney where you are and it's 6pm mm. in London where I am and, and through the time that we've recorded this podcast remotely, so I suppose that's the better part of two and a half years now where the bulk of it's been done through Zoom. I don't think we've ever quite had this combination. We've often had, <laughs> I've been up stupidly early or you've been up very late, but 5am after you've been to sleep, woken up and done a, a book promo thing, which is great that you sort of hit the ground running and getting up at 4am to do interviews and so forth, which is unusual for you, as we know. And yeah, it, for me, at my end, it, we're, we're entering into uh, Winnie's bath time, which I might actually miss tonight due to the recording of this. But all the same, it's good to uh, to be to be um, chatting after our long discussion with Peter Siddle yesterday, which was at what midnight my time went from midnight till half past one yeah what a what a joy it was it was just a such a lot of love there wasn't there principally from us towards pete but also like the way that pete (laughs) answered lovingly to a lot of the questions like he's such a caring considerate guy i mean 
And we go into a lot of this with him about his persona as the the big, rough, fast bowler when he first started and the way that he mellowed and how he mellowed, not just on the field but off it as well and and came out at the end of his career being such a master practitioner uh, as opposed to a firebrand quick and I think that's reflected in his personality as well. So looking forward to all of you getting a chance to listen to that and yes, I will be getting to Australia. I've had, uh, since we last talked about it, three further flight cancellations. It's an ongoing nightmare but thanks to a couple of people who've been able to go into bat for me at the airlines i've somehow um, stitched together a, a viable itinerary i'm i'm you know I'm, I'm entirely mindful this could fall over again between now and when i'm meant to leave the country here but it's been uh, occupying far more of my time than i would have liked it could fall over between now and when we finish recording yes. this podcast. I mean, <laughs> at, at this stage, we just don't know. Uh, yeah. But it's nice that we've been able to add to our, our show story time. We can now add bath time as, as yes. our, and, and next time. I wonder whether we'll hear her. I mean, she, she's, she's just finished tea next door. Yeah. Uh, she was getting stuck into the, the mashed potato, as she, as she will. Now, I wonder whether we'll hear her in the bath just above where I'm sitting at the moment. That'd be fun <laughs> through the sound effects, Mike. Well, I don't know. We'll see. She's in good form, Winnie, of late. She's very uh, very full of beans at the moment, even when they're not beans, even when it's potato. Nonetheless, um, it is 5am, so, so, you know, excuse me. The only thing it, it keeps making me think of um, this mashup track by Too Many DJs with the vocal sample that went... It's 5am. Do you know where your teenager is? <laughs> At the After Hours Club, where some say they enjoy drugs, dancing, and pounding, pounding techno music. Um, so that's where my brain is at the moment. I'm just having some, having some flashbacks, some, some revolver flashbacks. <laughs> Steve O'Keefe just took a wicket. Um, yeah, <laughs> rocking out the big ones. So Peter Siddle to come up. Before that, India ready to go in the uh, the ODIs and the T20s that will happen before the test matches. Rohit Sharma's been given a rest. Uh, the Australians have been doing lots of media, Glenn Maxwell, David Warner in the last couple of days, giving press conferences and we're just about ready to hit the go button. Yeah, and, and it's kind of crept up on us, which feels weird considering it's such a high-profile uh, series whenever Australia play India, of course, but I think that they're going to be playing T20s a year till the next World Cup. This is when the World Cup uh, would have been, albeit perhaps uh, three or four weeks ago, it would have been completed, if not for coronavirus. So, uh, yeah, I think that we're so focused on the Test 11 uh, and the different connotations, permutations of selection, especially in the Australian team, means that this has gone a little bit under the radar, that they're playing six white ball games to begin. Of course, Coley's playing in all of those, so there'll be huge amounts of attention around the world on, on his performance and the performance of his team. But yeah, I watched the, the Warner press conference earlier today. He was in good nick, as he tends to be these days when addressing the media. He did like a half an hour, you know, ask me anything type presser, <laughs> which, was, which was pretty fun. Albeit a lot of the questions revolved around other topics but yeah it's clear that uh, they've, they've, they've done the yards they're ready to roll and it should be good fun so uh, it, it's a chance for us to kind of ease into the summer in fact I, I really like I think well, it goes back a long time but a, lo- a long way back in our back catalogue you can listen to an episode of the final web where Jeff and I tried to imagine what the perfect Australian schedule would be as far as the mm-hmm. summer and it, it always came down to when you play white ball internationals before a test series it, it has such a a nice effect on building it up to a simmer. Like sometimes when a test series starts off a tour, the white ball stuff, especially the 50 over cricket, can be a bit of an afterthought. But mm. yeah, there'll be a lot of attention on this series. It'll blend nicely into the test matches starting in December. So I think that, yeah, this is the right balance. You do end up with that thing where 
the white ball games can feel like an afterthought, but also the test can feel like too cold a start. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Just, just, just suddenly launching into it when it's the 3rd of November in Hobart on a freezing day with snow still on Mount Wellington and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the West Indies dropping the leg spinner because he can't grip the ball. So the World Cup in a year, the thing that was supposed to be happening right now was the Afghanistan test match, which got dropped out of the schedule. Yeah, I, I got a little diary reminder a couple of days ago saying your flight to Perth <laughs> which oh. is, is due in four hours. Of course, that, that flight to Perth was cancelled a long time ago now and, and the test match as well. But um, knowing what that schedule did look like, it would have been a wonderful week, a great celebration of the Afghanistan story. We, we got a note from George Norman in our DMs reiterating that point. He said, given the events of, of this week, it would have been interesting on, on many levels. And uh, that's not the only uh, piece of correspondence we've received this week Jeff about I guess Australian Afghanistan uh, relations and yeah it could have been they were playing a test match and celebrating what's been achieved but instead they're not here and I suppose we're as a country having a very different conversation about Afghanistan. Yeah well timing wise it would have been extremely grim with the uh, the report on the Australian military in Afghanistan and the um, the likelihood that there'll be war crimes prosecutions to come in the future and yeah so Patrick Hargraves another listener wrote to say that he would like to see Cricket Australia take a lead in trying to fix that relationship with Afghanistan and to use the methods CA has at its disposal in terms of making sure to offer Afghanistan games, whether that involves touring there, giving domestic contracts to Afghan cricketers outside just the Big Bash, um, getting them involved in, in state cricket teams if there are a way to do that. And he was saying there are obviously things you can't fix, but you can invest in, in people's lives and he says that one way we can legitimately do that is improving their cricketers by offering our expertise and he makes the point that it might seem incongruous that Cricket Australia should need to you know be the ones to make up for things done by Australia's military but he makes a really salient point that um, as he says if Justin Langer wants to take the team to France to remember the diggers we can't ignore it when our soldiers fuck up and I think that's a that was a particularly compelling point for me. That if you're, if you if you're going to glory in military history in terms of you know something to look up to, something that's about bravery and heroism, it is hypocritical not to engage with the other side of that when when the worst of, of human behaviour is committed. I mean, it's it's quite a consistent hypocrisy. It's it's a it's a very common hypocrisy that's that's been conducted before and, and that will happen again, but it's not a hypocrisy that we should be willing to accept. Yeah, and, and I suppose like, it wouldn't be the first time we've seen uh, sport used as a, a diplomacy lever as well. Uh, it's not as though Cricket Australia, as you point out, and Patrick does as well, it, it's not that Cricket Australia are responsible for that, but Australian cricket broadly uh, can be part of the solution when you step back from it a little bit. Solution's the wrong word, but can be part of you know developing a stronger relationship and especially with Afghanistan who in the last 20 years or so have been able to develop uh, their cricket to the point where they are able to play against Australia at this level. Let's hope that uh, the test match is rescheduled soon and it's not just a one-off either that test cricket consistently is played between the nations and, and white ball cricket too and, and, and we can celebrate hopefully a, a positive part of the relationship into the future after this fairly dark chapter. 
The WBBL finals coming up. Melbourne Stars, Brisbane Heat, Sydney Thunder, Perth Scorchers. They're the ones who made the finals. The other four uh, missed the cut. So, so the Stars into finals for the first time. Um, what a strange world we live in. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't get a chance to watch much of the final round, but I suppose the dream finish where six or seven teams are, are all playing for a spot in the final four in their last game, we didn't quite get that due to the way, no. the way results panned out on Saturday. Yeah, it, it's um, it ended up being that there were really only five teams in contention after Saturday night, and then by the time the Sixers played on Sunday, uh, they already knew that that they couldn't make it, given that the, the previous results that had already happened that day, or or they they could have made it if they chased 180 in six overs. Um, they they could have got ahead of the Scorchers on net run rate, but that that wasn't going to happen. So they did have um, Elisa Healy just produce an absolute blistering. Hundred at that point though she she hasn't she hasn't had a bad season but hasn't had a super prolific season and then just in that last innings just pillaged it which I thought was particularly admirable um, given that they would have been pretty flat no having found out pretty recently that they weren't going to make it through. I like the idea that she tried to get them there. I mean, it looked as though, I mean, again, looking at the scorecard, like she thought, right, can I get them in six overs? Can I get them in sixes, as it were? Um, uh, which uh, uh, I think in, in the absence of a lot of other cricket being played this week, Jeff, I mean, I, it, it's hard to go past Elisa Healy for the Seabus Super Performer of the Week. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go past her. Um, why would I? Let, let's do that. Because Seabus makes sure that all profits go to members, not to shareholders. Seabussuper.com.au if you want to check out some superannuation stuff, get a piece. PDS, past performance, not a reliable indicator, future performance, you know the drill. Just on CBUS, Jeff, I love that we, uh, uh, we've we now got the new CBUS ads on the front of the show, which uh, generated plenty of attention. Uh, people don't like change, it would seem, but it's uh, it, it great to be able to, to freshen up the message a little bit and uh, wonderful that we have uh, CBUS working with us through another Australian summer. But yes, we um, again, as always, uh, there, there's some confusion about, for those that don't live in Australia, oh, the CBUS, uh, where, where is the CBUS taking them to? Well, the CBUS is taking us into another Australian summer so thanks to them for being there for us. The Sydney Sixers being knocked out means also that the season is over for Jodie Hicks Adam that leaves her on 32 matches played now 32 matches having batted six times in six years in those 32 games and never bowled and the Jodie Hicks story came to an end we spoke about the the golden duck and the diamond duck last week that was followed by another golden and I've I started out finding the Jodie Hicks story funny because it was funny because she never got to bat because she was always next in and and being teased by the prospect of batting and mm. never getting to bat. But it was it was actually really sad this season because there were these you know the three occasions she gets run out at the non-strikers end doing the right thing in the last over trying to hustle runs for the team and then. The, the subsequent dismissal, she came in with four balls to go in the innings, had to swing at it, mm. you know, tried to put one over the leg side. It came off her pad and bounced like well outside leg stump and bounced back onto the stump somehow from oh. that angle. She's doing the right thing. You know, you, you've just got to swing for the hills at that stage. So she's, she's, she was consistently being a team player, but it seemed like that sequence of, of having to come out to bat and making those scores probably rattled her. And then in a crucial game on the Saturday night, the Sixers lost to the Renegades, basically due to Lizelle Lee making a, a mountain of runs in quick time. And she was missed at gully by Jody. Uh, the catch, you know, very early in the innings. And it was... Uh, 
I've never, I very rarely felt for a cricketer more than that. You know, mm. she she was obviously distraught by it because because that's what the, the one thing she's got that she can control is her fielding. We've seen her take some great catches, but that that one went down and there was that that moment of you know where that ended up being a turning point in the season for the Sixers and um, whether we see her go around again is pretty doubtful but it's 100% not her fault you know the, the Sixers have made a mess of it in terms of how they've used her as a player over the years and, and never actually given her the opportunity to show whether she could be of value to them outside the field. I think that this will only add to what a brilliant story it will be when she turns into a superstar. I'm trying to look at it in those terms. This will, Yes, this will be a... Uh, when they make the film of the Jodie Hicks WBBL career, this will be a low point. But you need the low point to reach the euphoric high in the third act, don't we? So um, I'm willing to roll with the punches on this one and hopefully, as you say, um, this won't be the end for her in, in Women's Big Bash League Fair and she gets the chance to play in the WNCL. Of course, she's got footy as well. It's not as though like all her eggs are in, are in one basket as far as sport's concerned. But hopefully, yes, this has been a quirky story. Then it's been a bizarre story. Now it's a slightly sad story. But it, I think, yeah, there's some chapters to go in it, hopefully. Yeah, I, I hope so. I just I, I would find it hard to see her getting offered another contract next year um, on on the basis of, of what's happened so far. So the Melbourne Stars will play the Scorchers in the first semi. Brisbane Heat will play Sydney Thunder in the second. Um, and then they'll have the final a, a day, well, two days later, in between the Australian men's ODI matches. Um, and that will all happen at North Sydney Oval under lights. So that's coming up this week. This is great. So um, previously, uh, Women's Big Bash League finals haven't quite had the status that they otherwise might um, due to initially when they were played as a curtain raiser to the men's finals, then they finally fixed that problem, which was a really good thing. There was a, uh, an acknowledgement that um, simply having the finals played where the men's were didn't tally anymore. So that was one hurdle to clear. But having them playing at night in prime time, which is you know typically when a T20 final would be held, uh, makes a lot of sense. It's never been played at night before. I don't remember, Jeff, when last year's was played, what was coming after it, but it was it was a men's game after. Certainly two years ago, it was, well, it was in early 2019, but the end of the 1920 um, season, or sorry, the 18-19 season, where um, they had to play it, I think at 11.30 in the morning, in order to make sure that it was finished in time for the men's test match at the Gabba later in the afternoon. So, yeah, the fact that it's going to have have this pride of place in between two men's games. Nothing in the way, hopefully. It's a fantastic game, high-scoring game, and it finishes on a great note. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that, the way the stars are going. They should be at least worth watching, even mm. if the, the, the Perth Scorchers are very much a two-player team. But those players are the highest-run scorers in the league, so, you know... <laughs> <laughs> you can you can decide which way that's going to go. I'll be there writing about those games and looking forward to it. Uh, galloping on so we can get ourselves to our feature interview. Let's just have the tiniest, briefest, most in-passing little round of a game we like to call Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge! That's a very 20 past five uh, Nerd Pledge from you, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a I don't know who my neighbours are and I don't necessarily want to meet them right now. Um, nerd <laughs> Pledge, uh, which is a game that we play. It's a little quiz game that we play with people on our Patreon page. They help fund the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents that relate to a cricket number and we have to work out what the cricket number is. The first one comes in from Ryan Smith, who has generously sent us $9.34. And if you were to put the numbers 934 in sequence, Adam Collins, what cricket vibe might you get from 934? Decimal points optional. 
First of all, thanks, Ryan. That's a great pledge. Um, I, I didn't have a lot come up initially, which I was surprised by. I thought there'd be a, a number of 9 for 34s to choose from or there'd be a first-class score of 9.34. Well, neither of those. The, 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 those figures have never been taken in, in test cricket. They have been taken in first-class cricket, though, six times, and I'll, I'll come to that in a sec. Pete Hanscom currently has 934 test runs, and here's my link. I hope that uh, Pete will add to that, of course, a friend of the show, Pete mm-hmm. Hanscom. He's going to be the captain of Middlesex next year. He was going to be captain this year, indeed, but due to coronavirus, they, they shuffled his contract forward mm-hmm. to 2021-22, where he'll captain the club at Lords. And one of his bowlers next year will be James Harris, who picked up okay. 9 for 34 at Durham in 2015. That was at Lords, actually, against Durham, bowling the out for 71 and recording a big win so there's a little middle sex link between the new captain of the club and one of the one of the seamers the ever reliable james harris who has that nine for 34 and, and that's as far as i got jeff can you beat it okay i think maybe i can because uh, well my first thought was it wasn't it, it was nearly runs in a series but there are only a couple of 900s and, and there's there's the 905 and, and the 974 but then i thought that's around the the mark for batting rankings in the ICC um, ah, international yes. rankings, and nine thirty four. If you look at the historical rankings, is the number with which Virat Kohli went number one in the world when he went past Steve Smith, and he got to nine hundred and thirty four points. And it's not quite his complete career peak because he did eventually get up to nine thirty seven as the highest that he's got so far. But the 934 was significant in that it was the... There haven't been a lot of Indian batsmen at number one and that was the first time since Tendulkar that that had a a number one batsman in the world and that was with 934 points. So that's where I'm going. I I love that. I mean, what have we used now? We've used birthdays, we've used dates, we've used test match numbers, uh, we've used weight. It was pounds, wasn't it, for the big ship? Yeah, it was pounds, 294 pounds, I think. 294 pounds. So we've used... uh, uh, And I suppose what I'm encouraging is uh, um, don't think you need to use cap numbers and batting averages. If that is right and we're using... um, uh, rankings points that'll be a first and uh, a step in the right direction so thank you ryan smith and, and well done jeff working that out <laughs> the other number well it isn't really the number so it's 0.42 so 42 or 0.42 but terry hogan wanted to make this clear it's simply an addition to his existing pledge so mm-hmm. terry hogan of course great supporter of the show has been corresponding with us uh, weekly uh, since being uh, one of our patrons for a long period of time but uh, just wanted us to consider the number 42 mm-hmm. and jeff we talked about 42 um, last year in, in the context of Mitchell Stark, didn't we? Because whenever Australia play a day-night test match, we, we always, when writing our pieces, look up how many wickets Mitchell Stark's taken with the pink ball because he leads all comers by quite some margin. So 42 pink ball test match wickets Stark mm-hmm. has at an average of 19. So that's the first place I went. And the second was that Terry Alderman, of course, um, picked up 42 scalps in the 81 Ashes. So mm-hmm. uh, that's the most ever in an Ashes series by an Australian bowler. And the fourth most ever in a series. He picked up five wickets in an innings four times in that series and took 41 when he returned in 1989. The only people in between... Sid Barnes, who, uh, Jeff, you uh, spoke about a few weeks ago on the 49 wickets he took uh, in four test matches against South Africa in 1913-14. Jim Laker, the 46 he picked up against Australia, of course, in the 56 Ashes, with 19 of them coming in the Manchester test match. And your man, Clary Grimmett. 
Clary! Clary! Get to mention, don't want to have a final word without Clary Grimmett, the great leg spinner of the 1930s. Clary Grimmett, oof. Yeah, he picked up 44 wickets also against South Africa in 1935-36. So Alderman, yeah, 42 of the best in 81, then 41 in 89. Unfortunately, he was a rebel tourist between times in South Africa. So we will temper our praise uh, of the West Australian, but... He certainly was brilliant early in his career. 42, also uh, the meaning of life as per Douglas Adams. So that might be a relation for Terry Hogan as well. Uh, maybe it's a Terry thing. Maybe he just really liked Terry Alderman because they were both yeah. Terrys. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe if you get Terry Hogan, Terry Alderman and Terry Towling, they form a sort of cricketing <laughs> triumvirate. Or is there is there a Terry Jenner? Is there a, I wonder if there's a Terry Jenner 42 somewhere there. I might, I might look it up after we finish recording. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> I've no doubt that... that whatsoever that you will <laughs> i think i think we should get into our feature interview so thank you for playing nerd pledge um if you want to play nerd pledge you'd go to patreon.com slash the final word you get your number on the list it'll come up on the show we'll do it as a quiz and the benefit is that you help keep the show going into the future and we can keep doing things like we did next where we sat down with peter siddle for a lovely long chat that's coming up after we take a breather Jeff, given it's most unclear how I'm going to make my way from England to Australia at this stage for the test series that's coming up between Australia and India, it's best that before I leave the country here and make my way, that I get on my belt a little thing called the <laughs> Zolio. Because uh, I might need it. I'm, I might. may need it. This might sound tangential, but the idea of me being out of connection somewhere, it's an elevated risk in the near future. And I won't be the only person who is able to travel more now than I have been at different points during 2020. And, and it's, a, it's a great time to consider protecting yourself with a bit of satellite technology. Uh, now more than ever. Now more than ever. Look, the Zolio is like a little magic box um, that can fit in your pocket or hook on your belt, depending how stylish you are, I guess, um, whether you're willing to buck the fashion trends. Uh, and what it does is turn your ordinary phone into a satellite phone for the purposes of text messaging and, and emails and so when you're for instance stuck in an airport like Adam where your only hope of getting connected to anything is finding some dodgy free Wi-Fi hotspot in like a, a fake French bakery in Changi Airport or whatever it might be I mean well not Changi because they have great facilities but there are a lot of airports where you are not going to be able to get onto internet without you know the, a local phone number and all the rest of it and you can't connect the one time, the, the one time passwords with a local phone number i mean the yeah. effort one will go to to get a local phone i've gone I, usually the way i approach that is going to somebody who works at a shop and say can i just borrow your your phone for a minute and more often than not that works out for me but look you don't want to be dealing in that you, you want to have something that's going to guarantee that you can communicate while you're commuting Yep. So the Zolio box connects to satellite networks, which means that literally anywhere on the planet, you don't have to be in an airport. You can be on a mountain, on a raft, wherever you want to be. It'll connect to a satellite and then connect to your phone and let you be able to text any number or email, any email address in the world from wherever you are. And that's particularly relevant uh, if you're in Australia where you might be coming out of lockdown and you're able to actually travel and you can get out of the cities um, for Christmas and the holidays and travel more broadly, then this will make sure that you can always send a message, uh, including an SOS message, even if you don't have normal phone reception. Uh, and they want us to tell you that there's a little extra where they're giving away a free 
power bank, a little portable power bank that can recharge your device or your, your phone or your Zolio when you pick one up. Uh, and so I think the Zolio has a battery life of about 11 or 12 days anyway. It's, you know, it's pretty solid in terms, of, in terms of that. But if you want to keep your phone charged while you're using it, um, you can get this power bank worth 50 bucks at the same time. So I would recommend check them out. I'm such a sucker for a power bank. We are, you know, we're in a privileged position in the in the Simon Wallace, who uh, who is who is uh, associated with Zolio, dear friend of the show. He and I have talked a bit on Twitter in the past about how much we just love having our devices charged to 100 or as close as possible to 100. So we, you know, carry around with us portable batteries because we're the types that might sit on our phone um, for a long stretch and you don't want to get caught short on this kind of thing. So that's a lovely little little extra. And, um, yeah, I know whenever we're in press boxes and they give us a little gift, you might be at... I don't know. You might be at a, a test ground in New Zealand and they'll have a little gift bag for the journos. Yeah, sure, that's super indulgent that I'm talking about that. But when it includes a little power pack, you can guarantee they're going to get bang for their buck in terms of the marketings. I'll carry that thing around for years and as I will my <laughs> Zolio power pack. <laughs> well, the Zolio one looks pretty swish. So um, you know, we'll, we'll see if we can pick one up in the post ahead of Christmas. Anyway, that's the lowdown. Uh, you can get your Zolio, you can get your power bank. It's Z-O-L-E-O.com. Couldn't be easier than that. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to The Final Word Podcast. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon and we couldn't be happier to have joining us uh, down the Zoom line. One of the favourite people in terms of Australian cricket has produced in the last decade or so. Uh, Peter Siddle, uh, we've followed your career with such enjoyment through that stretch of time. It's great to have you on the show. No worries, boys. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. To begin, I mean, you're in Melbourne, but I mean, you're playing for Tassie this year. Talk us through what the last little while's been like as far as the relocation, but doing that uh, in the middle of an unprecedented pandemic and then, of course, being based in Adelaide for a stretch of time as well. Now the big bash ahead of you. Talk us through, you know, how it's all been. Yeah, I think 2020 for everyone's been a bit weird, but um, yeah, especially for myself, obviously making the change from Victoria to Tasmania um, for my domestic cricket um, was a huge change and something I think I've got the opportunity now to sort of look at my future a little bit and sort of develop my coaching and work with the coaches down there and the young squad and hopefully develop them. So that's sort of me looking ahead to when, when I'm done. But yeah, I think, you know, I was, pr- I was pretty lucky to get down there. I had to get an exemption to get into, into, into um, Tassie and then took the boat down and, um, and, and my car and, and relocated for obviously, yeah, at this stage for a couple of years. So yeah, it was a bit different, but yes, wife's still based in Melbourne and then obviously had the hub in Adelaide. So it's, it's been a little bit all over the shop in, in, in a year that has been different. So you wouldn't have had the chance to spend much time in Tasmania, though, I'm guessing, given that you were straight out into the, the Shield Hub in Adelaide and maybe Tasmania is still more of an idea than a reality for you. Yeah, it has. It's felt a little bit like that. It's pretty much got down there, had a couple of months with the lads training and preparing, but then, yeah, straight into a hub um, in Adelaide for yeah, just on just over five weeks. And then, yeah, I've obviously, before Big Bash, had the opportunity to come home here to Melbourne um, and, yeah, sort of rest up and freshen up a little bit. But, yeah, I, I, even over the two, couple of years, it is going to be a sort of a, a little bit of in and out. When I'm there, I'm permanently living there. But, yeah, I play I play Big Bash for Adelaide. Um, so there's a couple of months of the year that I'm out at out of Hobart and then I'm going back to um, England next year to play for Essex. So I'll be flying in, fly out a, a fair bit of the time. But, yeah, when mm. I am here, I will be based in Hobart. 
Yeah, by the time this episode goes up, you'll have turned 36, which, I mean, I remember when I was a kid growing up, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you. When I turned 36 earlier this year, I, I thought, gee, you're a pretty old footballer when you're 36. You don't think of many professional sports people sort of still going around, but the way you've been able to sustain your career and, and overcome a number of injury hurdles means that you're in, I mean, it feels as though you're, you're in a situation where you could keep playing for quite a long time now, at first class level, that is. Yeah, it sort of got to that point. Um, I think probably going back, yeah, five about five years ago, I think, was when I had my last uh, major injury where I tore the ligaments in my ankle, and mm. and because of that, hurt my back. So at the time, I was, you know, I think I was thirty one, probably wondering, you know, this probably isn't a good timing. Um, it could cost me a lot, but now I look back on it, and it, was, it probably came at the right time. If I hadn't had that break, then the sort of forced layoff for sort of nine months, it could have potentially, you know, I could have been done three, four years ago. But I think, yeah, yeah it sort of rejuvenated me and um, it got me into a place where I re- really worked hard over the last couple of years on my fitness even more than I probably had. And yeah, in a position now where I'm feeling good, the body's good, touch wood. And yeah, just keep ticking over. I'm loving playing, still playing first class cricket. Um, obviously love T20 cricket, love going over to England, play some of my favourite cricket over there with some great guys. So it's... um. Yeah, at this stage, there's no, there's no set date on when it might end. But, um, yeah, just loving every moment that um, that I get to get back out there and take the field. I've got to ask about the hair, Pete. I got so bored in quarantine that I shaved <laughs> half my head. I know. Uh, was, I was, was the, looking at that. It's looking good. <laughs> was the bleach job a quarantine uh, job for you? Was it just something to keep you occupied? Yeah, it was. It was initially... Um, the first ISO in Melbourne, uh, the the wife was going off to get her hair done and I was thinking, gee, you know, when I first started playing cricket as a young bloke, sort of 18 to, to 20, I was always, you know, putting bleach through it and dyeing it and doing all weird uh, weird <laughs> things back then. And I thought, you know, let's let's just try it all again, bring bring back the younger days. Um, so, yeah, I, I did, it, did it once during ISO uh, and then I decided, yeah, I might just keep it. So... Um, yeah, I've had three goes at it, at it so far, and I've got um, got a fresh got a freshen up tomorrow uh, tomorrow before my birthday. So all, all going strong. <laughs> Beautiful, uh, Pete. Usually, the, the form we take with these uh, uh, reflections on someone's career, and we go back to the very very start and the start where cricket begins for you. And as a, a, I guess, a teenager, young lad, I, I suppose when you first started playing for Australia, most people wanted to talk about you having been a woodchopper before you were a cricketer. Is there any truth to that, or is that a bit of a Wives' tale that's gathered steam over the years. Uh, no, there is there is truth to it, but it's, it's similar to, to most things. It's um, people probably think that I've been, I was a woodchopper for ten years, leading up into playing <laughs> and all that type of thing. But um, like my family background is there, there a lot of woodchopping in it. My dad's side of the family, um, uncles, everyone, you know, going to the, the shows around Australia and competing in little events. But um, yeah, I did it for a couple of years when I was sort of ten, eleven. And yeah, I enjoyed it, but I think that was the same sort of time I started. You know, basketball, football, cricket, mm. and if I if I wanted to stay on the on the field in those um, sports, I probably needed my big toes. So <laughs> I decided to get, get get rid of the wood chopping before I chopped off one of those toes, and I would have struggled to struggled to play any sport. That part of the world where you grew up at in Gippsland, we we did an interview with Will Anderson, the the comedian who grew up out that way as well, and, and his dad was a, a massive um, sort of country cricket star out, out in Gippsland, and he was talking about how much the sport was just fabric of life out there. It was it was you know woven into everybody's lives. What was that um, experience like for you growing up there? Yeah, it was exactly like that. Um, it's you know it was pretty old school. It was you know football during the winter, cricket during the summer. And then, yeah, if you're into basketball like um, myself and my brother were, 
it was that was all year round. So there was our three sports, and we just sort of went, yeah, just kept rolling through um, the seasons, playing those and, and and ticking along. And I think I had the opportunity to play soccer at some stage, F- football. We over, over with you boys we're, we're at the moment, but um, that's that was just life. I think you just love playing sport. You had your mates at school. We pretty much you played in those teams with and. It was just a good way to, you know, be around your mates and be able to be involved in a team. And uh, it definitely helped me playing in all types of sports and starting at a young age, um, develop that sort of, you know, passion for the game. But then secondly, the things that you need, you know, the will to win and the aggression and, and, and hating to lose. I think you, you start all those at, at, and learn those at a very young age. The first time I remember seeing you or coming across my radar, I think I've told you this in the past, was... Uh, in Dowling Shield, uh, when you were playing for Dandenong, so obviously you'd made it to that representative level, and I was playing for Hawthorne Waverley, and we needed two to win off the last over, and you took three for one to win the game by a run or something ridiculous, and just broke our hearts uh, there at uh, Central Reserve. And you know, obviously you were a standout player in that competition, and you get on the pathway, you're playing Vic under 17s, taking truckloads of wickets. But I mean, it must have been a real thrill for you at, at that. At that formative age, when it can kind of go either way, that you knew that you had sort of something special there. Yeah, it was. I sort of you look back now, and being a country boy, you probably I probably never thought I'd get the opportunity. How how would I end up in Melbourne? Like I don't live that. I never lived mm. that far away from Melbourne, but I never knew. And I was lucky. There was a coach one day. He came down from Melbourne. He was coaching our local rep team, the under 16s, or I think it was at the time above what I was at the, at that age group. And he sort of spotted me and sort of put, pointed me in the right direction, got me down to Noble Park in the hatch cricket and under 14s before Dowling Shield. And then, yeah, because I played for Noble Park, um, Danny Nong was pretty much the linked um, team with them for Dowling Shield. And that's how it came about. And I think, yeah, you know, some things just fall into place and that's one of those things. I look back, if, if that opportunity never came up and I never got down to play for Noble Park and then Danny Nong, who knows where my cricket might have gone. But um yeah, they were they were great years, and yeah, loved the seventeens and nineteens, and I think it was around that seventeen year age group when I took wickets in that carnival that I started to yeah really step up, even in just um, senior cricket for Dandenong, and um, that's probably where I started to believe that I was a bowler more so than a bit of an all rounder. Yeah, it was especially galling that day I mentioned before because a lot of my mates were playing for Dandenong because you know I grew up in Deva Hills, played in the DDCA, and then you know there's this bloke from the country bowling with a head of steam and knocking us over at the end and you know it's sort of name that you look for in the bottom of the newspaper on a Sunday morning you look and see this Siddle fella oh he's playing twos now oh he's in the ones at Dandenong geez going right here big 17s and again you're on this kind of on this trajectory and by the time I guess a lot of your friends would have been going off to finish school and, and go to university and those sorts of things, you're off to the academy. And that's a big step up, obviously, being a, a scholar up there at the Cricket Academy in, in 2003, again, a pretty formative age. Uh, what were your recollections of your first experience of being kind of in that system? Yeah, obviously, it's exciting, I think, you know, getting away with a group of boys. And, and back then, the academy, whereas we a lot of people probably know it these days, is sort of a younger thing where the blokes were 18, 19, 20 and spent this, the, the winter together. Back then, it was it was the old school way where it was pretty much just the best players outside of full on first class cricket. Mm. So you've got guys that are twenty five in the academy. So I was a, a bit of a young pup, and um, and yeah, just in awe of some of the guys I was with. Like I had older guys like George Bailey, Adam Voges, Sean Tate, Brett Dory, a lot 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 older guys that um, that ended up you know all, mm. all represented Australia, all had good strong first class careers as well. So. 
as a young bloke, I was just, yeah, just loved, loved the opportunity they had up there. And I think that's where you, you sort of start believing that cricket is that little bit closer of a reality than just that sort of that little dream as a young, as a young kid. And it, it doesn't take too long for that next step. You made your Victorian debut in 05 against the, the touring West Indies team. What are your memories of that match and that debut? Probably more so from the batting front. I remember they've <laughs> got, got nothing to do with my debut, but because it's obviously the lead up to the Test Series. And at the time, Hodgie was sort of like on, on the fringe player on the Test team. And, and I, yeah, I remember yeah getting the opportunity to play alongside. Hodgie was big in itself. But, yeah, I think he went out and scored about 150 or 160 in that game, which ended up getting him selected. So that's I remember that probably more so than um, than anything else. But yeah, it was it was obviously a great opportunity. I, I did get uh, my first first class wicket there. Who was it? Do you remember who I think it was? It was Devin, yeah, I think it's Devin Smith. <laughs> I think it. Yeah, it's, it's not not the Smith that played T Twenty. The other. Yeah. The, yeah, I think it was Devin. And then yeah, the, I think the game ended up turning into a T Twenty in the second innings. I think just because it was pretty much a dead game. Mm. It was only a three dayer and. I think just that opportunity to work, walk out there with, like I said, Hodgie and some of the other senior guys. Yeah, it was quite a, quite a moment just to be able to play that first game. And after missing 06, 07 with that sort of serious shoulder reconstruction, you come back in 07, 08 and do really well and kind of become one of the senior bowlers in the Victorian side. And the culmination of that is the, the Shield final at the SCG. A losing effort for Victoria, but... You take nine wickets in the game. I've, I've seen up on the visitors' rooms there where you've sort of signed your your five or whatever it was. Your figures were in the in the first innings, as is the the custom there in the in the away changing rooms at the SCG. But again, like there's that there's that step up, isn't there, where you've been given the chance to play play on the big stage, do well, and suddenly you're kind of knocking right on the door of a test selection. Yeah, it was. I think yeah, it's, I think that that game. I, people are, talk about that a lot. Not not just for the the side that New South Wales put out on the park. Mm. I think that's that's probably one of the strongest. Probably is the strongest first class side I've ever played against. You're talking Caddo, Jakesy, um, young Phil Hughes was playing then. Haddon, Clark, um, and then the bowling attack was Brett Lee, Stuart Clark, Nathan Bracken. Doug Bollinger had cleaned up that year and sadly missed out because of a foot injury. So they had an unbelievable lineup. Stuart McGill and Bo Casson were the two spinners. So it was just an amazing side to play against. And um, yeah, to be able to do well, I think I've always, like you said, prided myself on trying to, you know, when you get that opportunity to step up, try and perform and do your best. And I think that's that really gave me the confidence then that, um, you know, going forward, I was in a good position to, you know, make something a cricket and, and, and see where it'll take me. We were speaking to Stuart McGill a, a couple of weeks ago, had a, a long chat with him, and I was talking to him about why why people love leg spin so much. And, you know, for me, it's probably my favourite thing in cricket is, is to watch a leg spinner bowl. Do you have a, a little favourite part of the game for you as, you know, something that you enjoy more than anything else? Just batting. <laughs> I, I love batting more than anything. That, 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 that's all I want to do. I don't. I never really get nervous about it. I don't get worried about it. I just love batting. That, that, that's all I want to do. Um, I hate it. I, I'm not so fussed about getting the milestones and stuff. I just love being out there in moments and all that kind of thing. But yeah, batting definitely the best. And um, but on that, how you did talk about Stuart McGill and that final that we just spoke about. He bowled one of the best balls I've ever seen. He's, he was around the wicket. Hodgie, I think Hodgie left it or, yeah, went to sort of pad up to it and it, it went past his pad, took his off stump, clean bowled him. That was pretty, that was in the second innings. It was pretty much what turned the game. That was the only chance we had of winning. And, um, yeah, so 
like you just said, spin bowling is pretty good to watch when you've got guys like McGill or Warner. Um, we, you know, when Nate, Nate's on and bowling you to victory, watching those guys do their thing is um, is pretty exciting to watch. A bit of a diversion, but um, that comment about batting is quite interesting. I mean, as a batsman, or as a bowler who, who over time became a, a player who could be quite dependable for Australia and certainly at first-class level too, that journey, someone like Glenn McGrath, who of course came in as famously as a number 11 who couldn't get the ball off the square, ended up with a, a pretty decent last half of his career with the bat when you consider where he was batting. Is it kind of the same for you that the longer you've been in the game, the more you pride yourself on being able to contribute in the other discipline? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think because I love it so much as well that you just you just want to get out there and, and, and make some runs. I think um, always, you know, whenever Night Watchman was called upon, I'd always mm. put my hand up. I want to be the guy going out there as Night Watchman because my theory was that if the, the more time I had, the, be- the better chance I had of making a big score if that if that was going to eventuate. So I knew if I could last out the night that I've got a full day the next day to, to see, how, see how I go. So it did. I think at that, that going right back to the junior age where I was 16, 17, I was probably a bit of an all-rounder. But the bowling from then in the next sort of four years just like just skyrocketed. It fast-tracked a lot quicker than my batting. So it actually took me a lot of a long time, even for Victoria I and mean, Australia, to to get my batting back up to, you know, to scratch where, where I could at least, you know, contribute and, and play a part. And I think even more so the last couple of years, I think, yeah, I've just uh, maybe a bit older and wiser. I've become a little bit more patient and, uh, and a bit more selective on the shots I play that um, I've um, had, a, had a fair bit more success over the last few years than I probably did um, – the, the few uh, previous to that. And is it difficult to balance that just in terms of the time you've got to put into it? Because when you, your bowling's your main discipline, you've got to spend so much time and effort on that. You don't have that much left over in terms of training to work on betting? Uh, no, I think you probably don't have the time. Yeah, you're right there. But I think one thing I'm good at is, you know, whatever time I've got, making sure I use that wisely. And I think that's probably what, what I've done with my batting is that when I was in there, I made sure that, yeah, I worked on what I needed to, got everything right. And for me, it was just, yeah, like real simple things, just footwork, forward defence, and then, yeah, just sort of work on the shots from there. But I knew if my feet were working and I could last that sort of first sort of 20 balls, after that, it became a lot easier, which which it, it has. But I'm, I'm pretty simple. I, I literally don't face bowlers anymore in the nets. <laughs> so I just get throwdowns. Either the coach throwing them or off the off the little um, the dog stick the wanger. Yep. Um, but yeah, I literally didn't face a bowler all preseason, so it seems to be working the last couple of years. So I'll stick with that. Back to where we uh, picked up uh, finishing that Sheffield Shield season, and you get that opportunity to go to India with the Test team in in two thousand and eight, and you're a really popular debutante. I mean, that big smile when you put the baggy green on for the first time. Everybody remembers your first ball in Test cricket, badging uh, Gautam Gambier and hitting him on the front of the helmet with a bouncer. I mean, let's just touch on that. Bowling a bumper first ball in your Test career. I can't think of anybody else who's done that. Uh, can you remember what was going through your mind at the time when you thought, you know what, instead of trying to pitch it up and getting it on the on the cut strip, I'll, I'll try and really dig one in? Yeah, I think for me in those younger years, it was all about just just trying to bowl fast um, and mm. that's, that's that's all I thought of so that first ball nervous I'm thinking what, what do I want to do I'm like I just want to run in hit the wicket hard and bowl fast so I don't I can't remember actually thinking yep I'm definitely going to bowl a bouncer here but it was just that I'm like I just got to hit the wicket hard hit the wicket hard and bowl fast mm. so that's all I did I just <laughs> ran in and um, yeah in the end it, it, it bang hits him on the head and yeah it turned out to be a pretty 
exciting first ball. The only thing that disappoints me the most is back then it wasn't as the people didn't worry so much about the helmets and stuff like that. So he didn't he looked at it, didn't really change it. But he ended up changing it drinks because it had a crack in it. And I'm like, oh, it would have made it look a lot better if he had to change it after the first ball rather than wait, waiting an hour and then changing it. So, um, yeah, that, that's probably the only disappointing thing about that first ball is I would have liked him liked to have him uh, see him change it early on. But, um, yeah, it was it was a nice way to start. Changing on the sly. It was quite a hectic test match to be part of as part of, you know, your first your first test for Australia. You pick up Sachin, MS Dhoni, Verenda Saywag, but Australia's got this all-out pace attack, you know, Mitch Johnson, Brett Lee and you, and you're all getting smashed around as well. There's, there's huge scores racking up. It, it must have been quite a whirlwind to be part of. Yeah, it was. I think India never been the great, uh, the most favourite place for fast bowlers, and um, especially on your debut. So, yeah, it was tough. It took a while to get that first wicket, but um, yeah, I think once I finally got it, it eased the eased the, the pressure and the nerves a little bit, and I was a lot more relaxed. I think at the time, you, I didn't really worry as much that it was Sachin. I just I just wanted to get that first wicket. But yeah, I think over the years, when people talk about it or ask you who your first wicket was and stuff, it's pretty. It's pretty exciting to be able to say that, um, yeah, it was Sachin Tanduker and attended, it was, was the day where he passed the the, um, the runs, uh, what did 13,000, I think. He first played to get the 13,000 or something like that. So we had to stop for about 15 minutes and watch all the fireworks in the, day t- in the daytime and watch him celebrate and wave to everyone. And, yeah, so it was a bit, it was a bit full on, but... Um, so he, he hit that off me as well, so... Mm. Oh, there um, you go, part of history. always the exciting... Yeah, that's right. Exciting few pictures there of uh, me being the bowler with um, that he scored him off. Have you ever got a, a happy birthday from him on Twitter? Because that's all he does online is just send people happy birthday messages, former cricketers. <laughs> that's, that's all he does all day, every day. Oh, really? No, I haven't ever. So I might have to... Shocking. I might even prompt him. I might, I might try and slip in there and say, mate, uh, could you please send me something that would be really memorable? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm tipping there'll be a number of our listeners who might do that for you, actually, just uh, encouraging him to wish you a happy birthday later in the week. It's, it's an interesting time when you start your test career as far as the the trajectory of the Australian cricket team were on, because of course, you know, golden generation, you know, Warren, McGrath and, and Langer finish at the same time, you know, about a year or year and a half before you enter the side. A couple of summers later, South Africa come to Australia and actually win. First time Australia has been beaten on home soil for 20 years. It's a pretty uh, tumultuous first summer to be playing test cricket, albeit uh, punctuated with a, a spell at the MCG where you run through uh, South Africa uh, on the Saturday of the Boxing Day test match. I remember you were fielding down towards the old Bay 13 in front of the old Great Southern Stand and people were going absolutely wild. I was down there for a part of the day and it was really a wonderful experience as a fan. But your recollections of that first summer, both the, the challenges of being in a losing team, which was unusual for Australians at home, but also you know having that thrill of being a spearhead at the MCG on Boxing Day. Yeah, it was a different yeah sort of summer, I guess, coming home, even from India. I played that second test, but then I, I came in for Stuart Clark at a sore elbow. So the third and fourth test, I was back to you know running drinks and the water boy and but just loving being around the Australian side. So coming home to the summer, I didn't um, think too much about playing. I think mm. um, I sort of knew that I was going to be either, you know, in the in the sort of 12 or 13 and carrying drinks or, you know, I was going to be thereabouts. But I did not expect to be playing. And I think um, I didn't play the first two tests against New Zealand. Stuart Clark was back in. But then, yeah, leading into the... The South African series, his elbow was playing up again. Uh, he needed to get some um, work done on that. So I was, I was back in the, in the side and 
yeah, up up against it straight away. Perth wasn't um, something wasn't very memorable. I think um, yeah, I think I took one wicket uh, for the whole match. Um, they chased down four hundred on the, pretty much the last day and beat us. So it um, wasn't a great start to my first test um, in Australia. But uh, yeah, to play the next one at the MCG, another losing game, but. Like you said, moments like that. I remember being the fan um, as a young kid, with, sitting with my dad and brother down there cheering on Warney yeah, or yeah. Merv or other Victorians, Australians. But it, it, it's it's even more love for the Victorians when there is one in the side. So to be that guy, um, it was yeah, it sends shivers down my spine even thinking about it now. Because as a young guy, hearing that pretty much a, two years before that. I was the guy in the crowd having a beer, you know, cheering, cheering on. So um, to now be out in the field was quite amazing. Um, but that was an amazing series, more so for the fact that what happened in that last test, you know, the excitement of that, Graham Smith coming out with the broken hand batting at the end. We got the wicket with 10 or 15 minutes to go. And to win um, with a bit of a change-up, there was a couple of guys debuted um, and got an opportunity. But, yeah, so it was, a, it was a nice finish to the summer, my first summer in Australia, but... Um, yeah, obviously disappointment with that loss. When you're watching an exchange like that, like Mitch bowling to Graham at the end, you know, obviously you've got a field, but is there a part of you that, that starts to feel like a spectator again as well? Like you're you're watching this show play out, you know, you can't really affect it when you're not the bowler or, you know, you're, you're watching from the boundary line. Yeah, definitely. I think moments like that, you just like, you, you don't know what to think. You're just like, you're just watching and you're hoping that you get the wicket as a team. South Africa would have been sitting there thinking if we can just last out, you know, four, 24 more balls or whatever it might have been. So I think, yeah, just to be a part of it, you do feel like a spectator just watching each delivery walking in, but sort of hoping it doesn't come to you because you don't want to have to worry about the nervousness of trying to take the catch. But, um, yeah, I think it, moments like that and in games um, at different stages that you'd, you'd look back on, you think, geez, I was a part of that. And that's definitely one of those games where, yeah, it could have gone either way. We weren't going to lose it, but, you know, you, you fight so hard for five days, you never want to, um, you know, have a draw. And um, But, yeah, Mitch getting that wicket and just the excitement and um, and the thrill. Uh, and it was it was my first test win, so mm. it was quite exciting. Yeah, first test win, your first five-wicket bag earlier in that, in that test match as well. And, you know, a fantastic series win in South Africa straight after it as well, which I think sometimes gets lost a little bit in that era that, you know, a relatively young side, I mean, Marcus North on taboo, Andrew McDonald, so important, yourself, Mitchell Johnson doing all he did in that series. It meant that when you went to England uh, a little bit later in, in 2009, there was a sense that even though it was an inexperienced Australian team, that you kind of had every chance of going out and, and winning uh, there again. In the end, it didn't quite play out that way. But sort of you, thinking about the Cardiff Test match, the first test of that of that series, indeed the first day of the series where, you know, you knock over Freddie and Matt Pryor in the last what, last 10 minutes before stumps on day one, something like that, you know, all out aggression. There's this, um, I was going to reference this later, but there's this passage in a documentary called The Edge that, that came out um, a couple of years ago, um, looking at England's rise to number one through that period of time. And they kind of build you up to be almost like a pantomime villain, but it's purely due to the fact that you're just all aggression. I mean, you're like a, a young move Hughes, or certainly that's how the press depicts you at that time. I mean, how did it feel going to England and and almost carrying that tag of the you know the the grizzled Aussie mongrel for want of a better descriptor? <laughs> 
Yeah, it was it was weird. I think yeah, we'd had that obviously like you said the great series in South Africa, but yeah, that, my first trip there, and that that is how I played the game when I first started. I and I'm honest with it that I didn't have a lot of skills. I could run in all day and I could bowl fast. Mm. That was my skill as a as a young player. I didn't you know I didn't swing the ball a lot. I didn't in my early years get a lot of seam movement. I I, ju- I just did enough. And yeah, it was it, it was different. It's funny that you say that. I've I've spent a lot of time playing with Ravi Bopara at Essex mm. um, over the last couple of seasons, and and Ravi was in that Test match, and he was one of the players that um, that I was roughing up a lot. He he wasn't playing the pull shot. I was bouncing him. I was hitting him, and yeah, he always <laughs> talks about this young fiery Aussie charging in at him, hitting him, and uh, and and just trying to hurt him, and. I think that, that that's how I played the game as a as a young bloke. If you know, if, if Ricky wanted me to bowl fast the stumps, I bowl fast the stumps. If he wanted me to rough them up, I did that. And I think that's just that's that's how I went about it. And I think the excitement of being my first Ashes series as well amped it up even more. And it, it, just, it just went from there. But like you said, it's it was a successful series individually for a, a fair few of us. But as a team, we just couldn't um, we couldn't actually translate that to wins. Yeah, slips away from you in that that last test at the Oval. You know, the start of Stuart Broad producing sort of one Ashes defining spell at some point across the course of a series. You get named the ICC Emerging Player of the Year in '09. Then you get stress fractures and you're out for a year. Everything's been a massive roller coaster for you at this point. Like, where's your head at at this point in your career about whether it's good, whether it's bad, how you try to hold on to some sort of stability? I think probably the. I was in a good, in a reasonably good place at that stage, just because of the sheer fact that, at the time, I was playing all forms for Australia. I'd had probably sort of a good sort of fifteen months around the Australian setup, and I, and I, I was doing reasonably well. So, I wasn't. It wasn't all doom and gloom. Um, it was probably disappointment that oh, you know I've got to have a rest now. I can't keep playing, but it was probably a little bit of a blessing as well. Everything had come so quickly in the lead up to to those fifteen months that. Um, I'd gone from I hadn't played a lot of cricket for Victoria before that either. I'd only played eight Shield games before <laughs> I debuted for Australia. So to now be playing all four, like both forms at that stage for Australia, and you know all year round, I hadn't done that before. So the body just couldn't handle it. So it, was, it probably came at a good time because I knew then that okay, yep, this is what you know international cricket's all about. This is what I have to do to now stay at that level. This is an opportunity for me to, you know, transform my body a bit. And yeah, during that time, that's when I worked with Carlton Football Club and did pretty much all my rehab and all my training in that off season uh, with in their setup. And I think, you know, just seeing football players and and how professional and how and how they looked and prepared for their game um, probably, you know, flipped my mindset massively to how I had to be now to be a professional at international level. Yeah, and obviously when you were through that rehab process, the, the powers that be were backing you in pretty heavily, like not rushing you into the Ashes squad, but you know the fact that you were coming off not a lot of cricket and had missed all of the international stuff through 2010. Of course, it pays off big time, doesn't it? That Their calls rewarded with the hat-trick on, on the first day of that series. Just the ninth Australian man to, to take a hat-trick. Cook, then Pryor, then Broad, 26th birthday. Mark Taylor's commentary. I mean, it must be one of the most... I don't know what you reckon, Jeff, but it has to be the most replayed 
and well, most adored clip of of, uh, of Australian cricket. I mean, certainly since the YouTube era, maybe beyond that as well. But I mean, this is a, a, a piece of Australian cricketing history. You're right in the middle of it. I mean, of course, you would have watched it hundreds of times yourself, I'm sure. But uh, how do you? I mean, how do you reflect on it now, all these years later, ten years this week, indeed? Yeah, my best mate reminded me of it over the weekend. We're we'll, we'll out hiking, and he's like, you know, it's it's ten year anniversary this year of the hat trick, and I'm like. <laughs> That makes me, that does make me feel old, but um, yeah, I think leading into that series, I literally, like you said, I didn't know where I was at. I I came off the stress fracture. I was feeling fit, I was strong, everything ready to go. But I hadn't played much cricket. I think I played maybe one or two games for Victoria. Um, I think we played a one day series before that against Sri Lanka. I think I played two of those games, so I hadn't played much cricket. And it was just like, yep, here we go. I was pretty much out of Dougie Bollinger and, and myself for that first test, and I got the got the call up and. And the rest is history, I guess. That first test was, yeah, unbelievable on day one. After that, um, the rest of the series wasn't very un- unbelievable. But, uh, yeah, to, to do what I did, I think it's probably not till now that I've finished up international cricket and I look back on my career a lot more than I probably previously had. That, And probably now that it's coming up 10 years, it, it, it is pretty special of what I did and what I achieved on that day. And like you said, it, it is something I get sent regularly not even just around this time of year. Like, I'll have random people on Twitter. I'll have mates send it to me, like, middle of the year. They'll just be like, oh, we watched this last night. And, yeah, it, it does put a smile on my face. And, you know, Mark Taylor can thank you for teeing up the best commentary moment of his career because, you know, nothing will ever tell me. On his birthday, on his birthday. Like, that's, that's, his, that's his signature moment as well. <laughs> that's right. We, well, all we need to do is erase Mark Nicholas um, uh, f- from that little bit as well. Where what's he coming with? It's um, not yet. He hasn't. Oh, yeah. Not yet. He hasn't. Um, yeah, not yet. He hasn't. So if we can somehow um, we can dub him out of mm-hmm. it, um, it probably tops tops it off for all of us. But um, yeah, it was it was unbelievable. Mm. I think um, it was unbelievable hearing back the noise and stuff like that. But then you hear the commentary, and I think it just shows how exciting it was. Um, not for us, not just for us on the on the field and myself, but you know, for the fans, um, have random people around, um, like in the street that will just come up and be like, "I was there that day." Like, <laughs> um, I was up there with my son or with my dad, or you know, like stuff like that. And um, yeah, like I said, it, it it just puts a smile on my face. Yeah, it, it's it's because it's the first day of the series. I mean, at that point in time. One isn't to know that uh, that Cook and Strauss and Trot are to bat for you know the better part of two days to finish that Test match, and you know you end up having to, as I mentioned about the 0809 summer, it can it gets quite willing uh, in a home series. Australian teams aren't meant to lose to England at home. It's just not the way it, it's just not the way we're conditioned, having sort of grown up during that that golden generation. But again, you're the you're the bright spot. Six at Brisbane, six at Melbourne in incredibly tough circumstances after being all out for. 98 on the first day. I mean, you sort of leave that series clearly the Australian spearhead. I mean, it changes the role that you're playing, isn't it? I mean, you, you start the summer, you're Dougie, and, and you leave it as like, right, okay, Peter Siddle is, is the Australian number one fast bowler, and your, your role starts to evolve thereafter. Yeah, it did. I think it got to the point where even that series, I had a couple of those highest points, like you said, the two um, sixes, but outside of that, I bowled well, but probably didn't, you know have the success I would have liked. So it was starting to get to the point where charge in, bowl fast, it works, but it doesn't work all the time. Mm. Um, and I think from from then on was, okay, what, what can I do? So then it was just about, you know, still trying to keep that in the bank, but, you know, trying to work on other skills because if I want to make this last a long time, 
and not just a short one, um, I'm going to need some new tricks because, you know, teams are starting to sort me out a little bit. Fast bowling at that stage, once they, there was enough fast bowls around, the players were facing it. So it wasn't like it was, you know, you, you're not facing much fast bowling and it sort of catches you. So, yeah, that's where I sort of started then working on a bit of skill. I, obviously, I had this, the seam movement, which I could develop a lot quicker than the swing. But, yeah, the, over the next few years, working with, I, I had some good uh, times with Billy McDermott just working on new skills and I think that's where my game started to change and transform into not just being that young kid that runs in and bowls fast but yeah trying to be a bit little bit more skillful and have a few tricks up my sleeve so the struggles at, at sometimes during that Ashes series that's what makes you think you know I need to develop the repertoire here yeah I think so I think you know because that series it probably showed that on the flatter wickets fast fast bowling it can still it can still get wickets which it did at times but you know, if, if, if they can just sit on you and wait and sort of, you know, sort of work out your spell and wait for you to tire a little bit, which did happen. It was a hot summer. Same thing happened. We went to Adelaide, wasn't it? It was stinking hot. And, you know, I think it was Cookie and KP batted forever again. And it, it made hard work. And I think, yeah, they, those were the moments that showed that when it does get hard, you know, you can run in a bowl fast, but you're going to tire yourself out, which is going to affect you long term. So, yeah, what can I do? And that's, yeah, that was pretty much summed it up that, Let's work on a few tricks. Let's see what you can do. Uh, and that's where the game, I think, started to evolve a lot more from then on. Yeah, and I suppose when you think about it, given that you leave the 10-11 summer having had a good one, but in the lead-up to the next year, Cummins, Pattinson, Stark, debut within two test matches of each other, a new generation of genuinely quick bowlers. It gives you, the, I suppose, the latitude to start um, developing your game in, in a slightly different way. That's the summer where you pick up your 100th test wicket against India in that 4-0 whitewash your man of the match in Adelaide taking another five-wicket bag. I mean, it kind of seemed to suit you that you were perhaps able to play uh, the first change role as opposed to having to go out and badge blokes. Yeah, definitely. I think, and, and when you play along those, play alongside those guys as well, you want to you want to lead by example, but you want to bowl well. Sometimes you might need to, you know, build pressure and be economical because, you know, they're young and, you know, might be a, a bit loose and leaking a few runs here and there. So, I think that's where, yeah, it all sort of started to come together and happen on the run a little bit. It's not as if, you know, you worked it all out. Yep, I'm a, I could swing it. I can seam it around. That's what I'm going to do now. I was still playing and trying to develop these skills along the way. And I think that series definitely helped with that. I think that whole summer, you know, playing alongside those guys, um, my role changing a lot. I, I bowled first change a lot of my career, but I think that's where it started to, that I was a definite first change mm. bowler. And, you know, that, that's my role. I have to, I have to play, I play a few different roles and, um, and that's where I've got to go now. And it was a series, it's probably one of, one of my most successful series, actually, that whole summer. And yeah, one that I'll look back on and think, you know, I'll probably, it'll probably change my game a lot. It's interesting when we get to South Africa's next visit, you're talking about hard work on flat tracks and, you know, that's that's more of the same with the way that they bat out test matches during that series. And by that point in your career, you've been on the wrong end of quite a few results. You know, you start out with that, that uh, series loss in India. You've had the, the loss in England in 09, those couple of South African series, um, you know, big series that have gone the wrong way. Are you starting to get frustrated by this point that, you know, the test wins are very hard to come by, even though you've been bowling really well through the first few years of your career? Yeah, a little bit. I think, you know, you, that's the, like I said, the very start, you know, you, you, you play to win, don't you? Obviously, you love the game, yeah, but once you get old enough and you, you get out of those junior days, you just want to win. And growing up, watching Australia win all the time, I think it just, you probably believed it was a bit of a given that you just did win games. 
but yeah, I think you know over those years you, you start to learn that it's, it's not that easy to win test matches and a lot of hard work. So it's um, more than it probably didn't really put a dampener or anything. It just made you want to you know try harder, wanted to perform better, and try and get that success. Yeah, as we move towards that sort of twelve thirteen part of your career, I mean you gave an incredibly revealing interview to Nerily Meadows earlier this year talking about how you made a, a number of changes to your to your life at that point including um, giving up booze which had been a bit of advice for you as you explained with binge drinking through that stretch of your career early stretch of your career that is and you sort of realised that if you were to want to have a long career that didn't get yourself in trouble or otherwise you, you needed to make some changes off the field as well. Yeah, I did. I think, you know, it probably wasn't up until I had that chat with Nez that the people probably got a real picture of why I made those decisions back in the day. I never really spoke too much about it and in depth about why I did it, I think. And I probably got judged a lot on, uh, what are you doing? Like, why would you do that? You know, and, and I just sort of I just took it on the chin because I knew why I did it. And there's no reason why anyone else needed to know too much and to go forward. But I think, yeah, it's, it's something that sort of not ate away at me, but I, I did want to talk about because I, I, I probably it, it was a problem. It's not not was there's something that um that was you know it definitely wasn't helping me. And um yeah, to finally get that out and and sh- t- show people that there was an issue. Yeah, I might have been playing good cricket and stuff like that. But I think the the fondest thing now is to to think now that what I'm about to turn 36. I've got contracts to 37 next year, which which makes it 10 years pretty much since I would have stopped drinking. That's what excites me the most, I think, about the decision back then is I was pretty much about 27 or just turned 27. And, you know, I'd got myself in a bit of trouble with, you know, like Victoria and Cricket Australia and just the the, the things I was doing off the field, the partying, the drinking and that. And that to now think that, yeah, next next year it's going to come up 10 years from when potentially I could have been done with playing cricket. So, that's probably nearly as it brings as much joy to me about my career that I've had and that I'm still having is the fact that yeah, like I could have easily been done done playing cricket in my late twenties, and now here I am. You know, I've got contracts at the minute up until I'm you know over thirty seven, potentially even longer, and yeah, and still going. So I'm very glad that I probably got to that crossroad and made those changes because yeah. I quite easily, if, if I hadn't hit that crossroad, could have been done by the time I was 30. And yeah, who knows where I'd be right now. But by making that choice, I'm here now, I'm still playing cricket and um, and loving it. Can you take some enjoyment as well in being a, a demonstration that it can work? You know, that like with giving up meat as well, where, you know, a lot of people had a go at you about it or or made fun of you about it or whatever it is, but you've, you're a living demonstration of the fact that it can work, you know, that, that you can, you don't have to be on the piss all the time and, and you don't have to have a certain kind of diet to be able to succeed in, you know, a sporting environment which can be pretty close-minded about a few things. Yeah, that's right. I think the big reason for just getting it out there, especially the drinking side of things, was that, was that, you know, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. I think, you know, especially when you're playing big team sports that, it is peer pressure. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But I had my issues with drinking. It, was, it de- definitely didn't um, sit well with me when I when I had too much. And and I've always been one that you know at, at zero at zero or hundred. There's no in between. So there was no choice of I oh, just go out and have six beers and then that's your night and go home. I always thought if I'm if I'm if I'm going to have one, 
I'll have a hundred, which isn't a great <laughs> yeah. way to be thinking about it, but that's what I'd do. So yeah, that, that was the big decision. That was and and that's what I like to talk about is the fact that you know it's it's all right if you if you can't handle the booze and I, I couldn't handle it. So and there's plenty of people like that, but probably still push on just because you know they want to fit in or they want to be out. And I'm at a point now where I can go out and about, and people probably think I'm on the booze. You know, they they probably think oh, Sid's is back drinking. Have a look at him. Um, but I have as I have as much fun as um, as anyone out out in the boys celebrating wins, end of seasons parties whatever it might be um whether it's out at a pub at someone's house like oh, i just like um you know having fun and and I, and I don't need the booze to do that so yeah i think you know the changes i've made have have definitely been very beneficial for me short term but also long term i think yeah to be at, at the end of the day i'm a fast bowler that's playing at 36 i played i think the boys were joking the other day i played my 193rd first class game the other week over in Adelaide uh, with the boys and they were just laughing that I'd played so much cricket um, as a fast bowler especially. So that's definitely all paid off for me and it's all worked so far. Yeah, so much of it uh, in this, I guess, that second phase of your career was without without meat as well. And, you know, not eating meat myself and Jeff in a similar boat. I mean, you know, the, the real sort of cliched criticism that comes up and, you know, Jeff says sort of, defying uh, that perception over a long stretch of time, particularly when that series against South Africa where you bowl yourself into the ground, well, you're not by choice, of course, but because Pato's injured and you have to bowl all day on that final day heroically and then miss the next test match um, on account of that because you bowled a lot in Brisbane as well. But um, I think you bowled more, if I recall correctly, you bowled more overs in that test than anyone had for Australia as a fast bowler this century or something ridiculous like that. But nonetheless, when by the time you get to the next Ashes series, that's all anyone wants to talk about. 2013 in England and 13-14 in Australia, the back-to-back 10 test matches. I mean, your role on the side is very clear, complementing... Um, Ryan and Mitch and, and earlier with different bowlers playing in England but you know it's all going really well but all anyone seems to want to talk about is how many bananas you eat today. oh bananas oh he had a few bananas oh, oh look at him with the bananas I mean that, that must, right. at, 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 at one level that must get I mean you know I, I know you're a pretty happy-go-lucky resilient kind of fella but I mean at some level you must go come on is there anything else you guys want to, do you want to talk about my cricket for once or are we just going to go back to the banana thing yeah I think that's the the funny thing with it is, is obviously it actually goes back to that that big test match in South Africa, oh, in in Adelaide against South Africa. Yeah, I was obviously I turned vegan a little bit before that, and I was I, I have a lot of smoothies, so that's where it came from. And at the time, I was getting the you know different places were sending me big things of bananas for the week, but not for me, not for just me, for the boys. And so I, I took this big uh, big tray of bananas um, in the morning to the to the change rooms boys having their smoothies and everyone eats bananas during a cricket game so that's where it came mm. from but Warney made the joke oh yeah he has like 20 or 30 which <laughs> which is when then when you talk to kids about it you joke around with kids because you know you like to amp up a story and, 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 and kids love the fact that you they don't know you're lying so you, you, you lie to them but I think I, I stuck with the lie with the kids for too long that the adults ended up you know sticking with it so the, the selectors I mean the commentators made it even worse because they, yeah, they did they kept amp, amping it up but it's like I was only amping it up to the kids. These guys are amping it up to bloody all the adults around around the world. So it probably did get a little bit over the top and a little bit annoying, which I don't mind when it's kids and you joke around with it. But when the adults bring it up, you just like laugh at them. I'm like, come on, mate, how childish are you really? Like, um, so it's it's, it's probably um, it's probably run its course. I, ne- I need something to change it, don't I? <laughs> 
<laughs> you need to be photographed carrying something else. <laughs> he ate 63 bananas yeah, today. I've like, got a reliable authority. That's right. The, the hair's probably worked a little yeah. bit. The, the hair's probably got him off the bananas a little bit, so I might just have to stick with the hair for the rest of my career. Uh, on the field uh, during those Ashes series, of course, I mean, you know, the whitewash. So we talked about how you'd experienced low times at home, which is unusual for an Australian cricketer historically. This huge surge of enthusiasm around that team, winning 5-0, you know, a side that had been beaten in England and come back so comprehensively under the captaincy of Michael Clark. The fact that yourself and Mitch and Ryan, who I mentioned before, and Nathan Lyon took the 100 wickets between the four of you, plus I think 10 of those were, were taken by Shane Watson as well. But the unit gelled just perfectly, didn't it? And, you know, by that stage of your career... As you mentioned before, you're doing other things with the ball. The fact you had it over Kevin Peterson so comprehensively in that series, not from brute force, but from sort of running your fingers down the seam and outthinking such a great player like Peterson. It must have been such a rewarding phase of your career. It was. It was probably the biggest series in my whole career, you know, just of how it went about. Obviously, yeah, you have the whitewash. You have the fact that we played the same side every test match. And then, yeah, the, just that bowling lineup. You had Mitch doing what he did, but I think most, nearly everyone's um, performances in that that series, not so much wickets tally, but I think average and how they bowled everything was nearly probably individually each person's most successful series mm. in, in in a way that we just bowled so well together. It helped that Mitch was probably scaring them. So it gave me and um, especially Gaz a lot more opportunities to get wickets because they were probably trying to take us on so they didn't have to face Mitch um, Mitch anymore. But, um, yeah, it was. It was just such an amazing series to be a part of. And, yeah, just, just to look back now to think that, yeah, some of the summers that I, that I had previous to that, to be able to have the success in that series as a team was, yeah, quite memorable. I talked to Mitch Johnson about that summer at one point and he was trying to explain how it felt bowling that summer and he was talking about standing at the top of his mark and just feeling completely free he said that that was how he described it that there was nothing going through his head his his body felt relaxed and he just felt free to bowl as fast as he wanted does that extend to the whole bowling attack after a while that you when you're absolutely flying like that that you know that there's this momentum to it that it feels different to to the, the toil and struggle of before or you know or is it still just as hard work as it ever was it's just that it happens to be coming off no i think there's a bit a bit of truth to that for sure i think yeah just like we like we said that all the bowlers had so much success individually that one you put all that together and you would just you, you get the ball in your hand whenever you came on it just seemed like someone was getting a wicket in your spell so i think there was just so much confidence individually with each other that yeah that you knew something was going to happen you know, Mitch and Ryan would start it off. They'd get a couple of wickets. They'd bowl well together. And then Gaz and I would come on together. And we just continually just kept taking wickets, building pressure. And it did feel like that. I think, you know, when guys were coming in, you weren't intimidated by them. I think, yeah, that was... I, I obviously always loved the challenge of bowling against the best players. And, and that's where the KP thing came in. I don't think I, I tried any harder against him. It's just the fact that he was such a good player that I wanted to be successful against him. No different to how I wanted to be against Tanduka over other teams, you know, or AB de Villiers for South Africa. You want to do well against the best players. And I think that's why I had so much success against KP is that I just wanted to get the best players out. He was their best player. And yeah, I just I wanted to have success and it was always a good battle. 
If looking at your career in sort of segments, uh, a pretty obvious uh, segment uh, in, in, in some respects is when you stop playing so regularly in the Australian team and, and it coincides with the Test match in Adelaide in December 2014, just after Phil Hughes passed away, which I know it's obviously a challenging topic this week more than most weeks given the anniversaries coming up um, as well. But uh, you, you've discussed again earlier this year, but a number of times really that Having been a firebrand, hyper-aggressive, fast bowler, the way that you approached your craft changed in the aftermath of that tragedy and sort of cha- just modified the way in which you, you thought about cricket. Is that a fair characterisation? Can you kind of elaborate on that on that thinking? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, as, <laughs> I think yeah, this time of year is never a great time. I think I, I brought it up a lot in the narrowly thing and people probably don't think much about it, but the hat trick... Yeah, it was obviously on my birthday, but yeah, you lose one of your best mates. It happened on my birthday, so it's it, as as much as people like to talk about my birthday and the hat trick. It's actually not as exciting for me as it probably is for everyone else these days. That's not a great week, but yeah, it did change my cricket. I think you know you lose a mate at a young age. You lose anyone at a young age, whether it's a mate or someone you know of that. They just should. They, they should still be around, you know. Like they still had so much time to live for, and I think that's how I started to to look at my cricket. I'm like, I just have to enjoy it. I just have to have fun because you don't actually like. You know, we always talk about it that oh, you know, it could be a last game, but we're talking about selection and stuff like that. Mm. Not so much um, your life. And after that happened, it was it, yeah, it made me probably just focus a lot more on the moment the particular game and day that I was playing rather than just previous to that, I probably just worried about series. I'd look at a whole series and yep, I've got to get through four tests or whatever. And then I can have a bit of a break or how it might be. Um, and it probably affected my cricket in those days, worrying too much about the end of a series rather than each one. And I think maybe not at international level, I didn't have, have the success after that's that, that I, that I would have liked, but I think domestically my numbers have probably been better in the back half, just because I've solely focused on, yeah, just enjoy this game. Whether it was playing club cricket for Danny Nong, first-class cricket for Victoria, Essex, um, now Tassie, big bash at the time. I've enjoyed each individual game more so than worrying about looking ahead. And I think it's, it's yeah, it's probably helped me. It's put me in a better place, I think, just with playing the game. But, yeah, it, it definitely did change the way I, I probably bowl. I probably lost a little bit more aggression after that happened but yeah that's fine i enjoy the way i play cricket now and i enjoy the skills i've probably developed uh, over those years it seems from the outside that you know a lot of people outside australian cricket or or outside the the inner part of it don't really understand how profound the effect was of, of phil's death that that he was so popular and and so well liked and that he's you know had these strong relationships with players who who were from different states or different parts of the country and who you wouldn't necessarily associate with him but for people outside they sort of say oh well it's a few years ago now that's in the past but it's still very present for so many of you guys who who were close to him is that a fair assessment yeah it is i think it's it's probably no different than if you just look at a family you lose a family member and um, and you, you know, you celebrate the anniversary each year. It just happens that mine's on, you know, mine's all, is on my birthday. Um, it's around that time of year, and sister. Uh, yeah, I guess I don't know how. Yeah, it's just I think that's that's how we get we, we remember it, isn't it? Like I remember it. Everyone has their own individual memories of 
why thing hap- things happen. And I vividly still remember the day. Um, it was my birthday, obviously, but I was in the cinema. And, and being a cricket nuffy as I am, I'm always following scores. So I was, I was in the cinema with my wife and I'm just following the scores of, the, of, of state cricket at that time. And I'm just looking around and I knew something was up. So yeah, I remember walking out and calling Hads because he was playing that game and one of my close mates and yeah, just having a conversation with him there. And um, yeah, I remember walking back into the movie. I told told Anna yeah, what was going on and we pretty much got up um, and left and yeah, the, just things like that you remember and I think we always will. I think, yeah, like I said, it's always an anniversary and yeah, obviously being on my birth, around my birthday and stuff that um, it's quite um, memorable in a bad way. It's just, it's a memory I'm always going to have. Michael Clark at the end of his test career wrote uh, about the aftermath and especially when he was in the Caribbean I suppose it would have been about four or five months later, the, the test, the albeit brief test tour uh, in the West Indies, which was a tour you were on as well. And as he explained it in that book, it, everyone had moved on, but he hadn't, and nor should he have, because, you know, the friendships that, that were there and, and deep and meaningful and so on. But, yeah, it, it, it's kind of funny how the wheels of the game just kept moving so quickly and it was almost no time to take a breath other than the immediate aftermath um, for those who are involved and you know suddenly so you're in the Caribbean there's been a World Cup you're on the way to England and you know life just sort of surged on and um, your role by that point had changed again I mean you go from being one of the frontline bowlers to being a squad bowler you're you're sort of uh, one of the ranks but but not expected to play in the Caribbean not necessarily expected to play in England you did and we'll come to that in a sec but yeah I mean you're a senior player but not playing a lot's happened in the previous year I mean, it must have been a fairly testing time um, for you and a number of the others who were senior players, just kind of having gone through so much in the previous six months. Yeah, it had. I think um, it was just, yeah, it was just cricket had to go on. And I think, like we spoke about, is that that's that's what he would have wanted. He loved the game of cricket. So as hard as it was for us initially and then to go forward is that, you know, we'll, we'll always, always had in the back of our mind that, you know, this is what he'd want. He'd love to see us playing out here and winning and, and, and going well. So that sort of kept us ticking on. I think personally it was – it probably made it harder by not playing in, in, in a way because, yeah, you, you wanted to be out, be out there, a bit of a distract, distraction, but be able to, you know, as if, as if you're performing for him and, and doing well. So, so it sort of made it hard being on the sidelines. But I think, you know, the, 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 it moved on. And, and yeah, it was probably just the toughest on the sidelines, I reckon, just not being able to play the game you love. Um, you just want to play. And, yeah, like you said, West Indies, I probably wasn't really going to play there. But England was the one where I knew I probably wouldn't play a part in all that series. But, you know, there's there's definitely opportunities. And um, there's probably games that I that, that I missed out on that I probably should have been a part of. Yeah, it coincided with the with the, at the time Darren Lehman um, being quite forceful in his public commentary around 140 clicks or, or kind of nothing. And at that part of your career, you'd made that not d- decided shift down the gist, but but you were doing a different role. You were playing a different role on the side, moving the ball around and, and so on, which was so well suited to England. And it turned out when you got your chance at the Oval, you pick up six for sixty and you, you know you bowl the house down in the final test. But it's all a little bit sort of too late. It, is it cold comfort that? Um, not only Darren Lehman, but the Australian cricket fraternity, I suppose, were as one saying that was a mistake. That that philosophy that 
pace is the only thing that matters. It seemed as though after that 2015 Ashes that Australian cricket realised that there definitely was a role for, for a player that did the, the sort of thing that you were doing. Yeah, for sure. That's probably the one thing that, that probably changed a lot going into the, pre- the series that we just came back from, you know, most recently is that, yeah, for, mm. for once we probably finally focused a little bit on the bowlers that are suited to those conditions um, and, you know, the, 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 the grounds that we might um, play on and the wickets that we might get dished up. So, yeah, that, I, I look back on that series and that, that is one that sort of got away. I think we, we had the squad and the lineup to do well in that series yeah, we obviously lost Ryan Harris, didn't we, in the lead up to that series? So that was a big, a big loss. But yeah, there was probably you know conditions. Um, Edge Baston, Trent Bridge are the, the two games that you know that if, if if you look back on and and, and grounds that I've had success on, they're, they're the two grounds and I didn't play a part. Um, two green green wickets and the boys still did reasonably well on them. I'm not saying that that, that, that they didn't do well, but. If I'm picked in a squad and going to get picked, those two good games were the two games that you'd pick me on, not the oval in the last one. I know I did well, but, yeah, the two two previous grounds, and especially Trent Bridge where I'd taken um, so many wickets for, for Nottingham, but for Australia previously. You get back in for the New Zealand series at home. You were stuck on that 192 wickets for what seemed like an extremely long time, even for those of us just watching your wicket telly, you're probably more so for you. But you get to 200 in that day-night test. You bowl beautifully. Yeah, you're key with the bat at the end. You're part of that winning partnership at the end, squirting a, a few runs behind point and, and, and getting Australia home in a, a very sort of bum-tightening chase. Um, and you get to 200. Was that Did that matter to you? I mean, I know the numbers are arbitrary, but is there still that sense that you want to get into the 200 club? At the time... It did at the back end. Like, I think throughout my career, you know, I never really worried about what I was going to end on. I'm just like, I'm happy to be playing test cricket and taking wickets. So I'm like, yeah, this is exciting. But I think because I was stuck in the 190s for so long, um, like you said, I was you know, I was in the squads, but always, you know, thereabouts, I'd play the odd game, get a few wickets and I'd sneak up to 190, 192. And I sort of, yeah, I sort of thought after the, those, the Edge Bast and Trent Bridge, I remember Trent Bridge, I told I wasn't selected. I was furious. I didn't even warm up that day. I just, I just sort of floated around. I, because I, I, I genuinely thought my test career was probably over. I thought if I was ever going to play, this is a wicket I'm going to play on. And if I'm not getting picked here, how am I ever going to get picked anywhere else? And I said that to Ricky Ponting. He was commentating at the time, and I said, Panama, if, if I'm not getting picked, I'm not getting picked anywhere. So I, I genuinely thought I was done. So yeah, to get that opportunity, obviously. At the Oval and then, yeah, back in the summer, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was very um, exciting in the end to get there because I probably thought, yeah, that I'd never get the opportunity to take 200. So I was very happy to be able to tick that off in the end. Another pitch that suited you really well was Wellington. So you get to the end of that home summer, do pretty well, <laughs> got bowl, bowl beautifully on that first day only to pick up that quite serious injury which saw you out for well the rest of 2016 and it's interesting like I know you and I have talked about this before in other interviews where you feel as though that was the really important layoff as far as I mean that and the one that happens after the Perth Test match in uh, 2016 against South Africa where you're again kind of rushed back um, well 
maybe that's not the right form of words, but you're playing when your loads aren't as high as they may otherwise have been. I think the, 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 medic, the medicos might call it. Uh, and, and you know, but those injuries. I, mean, I suppose that two year period where you have two serious injuries. The way you've explained it before is that in the absence of that, maybe your body would be knackered by now. But you had kind of like a a pause at a good moment. Yeah, definitely. I, it is. I've spoken a lot about it and was, yeah, I pretty much finished that summer. had a bad ankle problem going on through the summer and we didn't really know, know what was going on. I was getting scans, all this type of thing. But So I missed the last test in Sydney to rest up for New Zealand. Uh, went to New Zealand. The ankle problem straight away rose back up again during that, that, that first test. And so then because the ankle's playing up, I'm doing more with my back. And the back ends up giving way, so which is disappointing. But we decided that yeah, that's when we could get the ankle looked at while I was on the layoff for the back. And it turned out that I'd turn, torn two tendons in my in my ankle. So that, hence the problem that I had going on for pretty much three months was solved. But it had caused my back. But yeah, um, it, it was a bit of a blessing in the end. I probably did come back a little bit too early in Perth. Um, but as a player, you, you just want to play for Australia. So as silly as I. You know, it's easy to say now, uh, yeah, I wasn't ready, which I wasn't. But at the time, I feel good. I felt okay. You just never never think you're going to go out there and have to bowl 50-odd overs yeah. <laughs> in your first test match back. Um, 43 so degree heat. It didn't, yeah, so it wasn't the greatest time to come back into the side. But we picked it up early enough that it didn't then – I didn't do it too much damage. I just It just flared up a little bit. So I knew that I could rest out that summer – and start from scratch again in the preseason, and um, and move on forward from there. But um, it's definitely at the right time. If you had added another year or so onto that, a lot more cricket with a back that was probably at the time on on its sort of last legs. Yeah, I'm probably done at 33, maybe pushed to 34. Whereas now, yeah, still playing at 36. Touch wood, not carrying any injuries, and, and the body's feeling good. That that yeah, I've, I've definitely got a, at least another four or five years out of it where I probably wouldn't have. And if you're going to miss a test match, the one where Australia gets bowled out for 80 in Hobart and they sack half the side, it's probably not a bad one to miss. You know, though that might have helped extend your career as well. No, there's probably a lot of truth to that because, yeah, it's probably a ground that if we get bowled out for that, they're probably expecting an older guy to, you know, and do well on a, on a, on a wicket that should suit him. Yeah, and, and my age at that time when they went to do a bit of change probably wouldn't have, um, wouldn't have been a, a, a good time. So... <laughs> Yeah, it probably is a blessing that um, I got out of that because I've been in too many of the other ones where um, we've been bowled out for very little. So it was nice to, in a, in a good way, um, not be a part of but it. When you when you come back from that break, you you know you're a phoenix from the ashes. You come out suddenly, you're winning the big bash with Adelaide. You've turned into a, a Kenny T Twenty bowler with the change ups, <laughs> and then you go over for Essex and start absolutely running wild on county championship wickets, which you know suit your style of bowling, and you you look completely rejuvenated. And suddenly, you know, we're getting super excited about like what's Peter Siddle up to again. Yeah, it was weird because I, yeah, I still had the ambition and you know to, to continue playing for Australia, but there's probably not a lot of other people that did at the time. I think, um, and did, yeah, I did. Was, we were like, <laughs> getting back in there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We we still had that Ashes coming up, so I, I knew that yeah, there's still a bit of time. But yeah, for me, it was I didn't really think too much about it. I wanted to. But it wasn't my focus. Like I said, I'd, I'd gone with the focus that I just wanted to enjoy my cricket ever how long I had left and enjoy each game I played. And that's how I went about it. I loved the T20 with the strikers. 
trying new things, perfecting that, doing well there. And it was it wasn't until I had a phone call from JL not long after he got named coach. I'm in England bowling well, and he was we'd always been friends and close, and he'd always talk to me about different stuff. And so he more he was more contacting me and talk about the team and some of the bowlers and you know what have they been working on or what was the team like just ideas more than anything. And then he left he just left me with one comment one day that really just gave me a bit of hope. And all, and all it was was that he just finished off with just remember every game counts every game still counts hmm. and when i thought of that i'm like you know maybe he's just is it, did he just drop a little <laughs> bit of a like a little just dangle a little bit of carrot for me you know like that maybe there is a chance that you know yeah so that that's all i thought about i'm like each game i was going out for essex and just wanted to do well and just kept taking wickets and um i did the same in a little bit of swing bowling to then get called up to go on tour Dubai, which was probably a, was, which was probably a little bit a little bit chalk and cheese of um, conditions. But um, you know, I've ha- I've had a bit of luck over my over my career at different stages, and that was one of those times that there was a few injuries, and the spot was there for leadership, but also you know um, a bit of experience in the bowling attack. Yeah, the, the, the timing of that really, when you, you go back and obviously you're not there for the sandpaper debacle or any of that i mean you, you know that's part of your you know layoff at the time and justin langer becomes coach close friend of yours brings you back as he said himself he just wanted you to be part of the squad he wanted you in the dressing room which kind of goes full circle to what we talked about earlier about you know six years earlier giving up the booze becoming a real leader leader around australian cricket senior player dependable senior player that JL thought no no he's the bloke we want so even when you return to Australia for 18-19 you don't play a test match but you're in every squad because JL wants you there and that, again that must be quite gratifying for you that even though yes you would have rather been in the 11 sure but that he still wanted you right there in the inner sanctum uh, through that really challenging time for Australian cricket with the 2019 ashes on that horizon. Yeah, it's like I said, yeah, got picked up to go to Dubai. Um, not the conditions, then I come home and yeah, six test summer, pretty much carry that. I became the permanent twelfth man. It was, it was different for me, but like, like I've always said, I just love being a part, especially the Australian setup. But any setup, I just want to help the boys win. As much as you're disappointed when you're twelfth man, um, you just want to do all you can. And yeah, to be able to you know play a small part in helping the boys, you know, build back up, get the team back up and going, and. Um, and in a good place. Um, I think I, I did a bit of that. I could, um, yeah, help with a little bit of leadership, whether it was out of form, blokes, blokes struggling with a little bit of injury or what it might be. I became a little bit of a, you know, like a, a father figure, I guess, with, with, with those young bowlers and, and, and the squad because it, it had changed a lot in that turnover. So as much as I wanted to be playing after being out of the side for so long, it was just great to be back around the side, back close to playing. And then in the end, yeah, JL, I think, you know, I've probably got a lot to thank for that. I've got the got to have my one day get back in the one day side after about eight and a half year layoff. So <laughs> And the rest. Um, there's not too many Yeah, there's not too many guys that have had that had had that long between drinks in playing a game. So uh, but yeah, obviously yeah, my relationship with JL helped, but I feel that maybe not so much on the park with my performances um, as a player it paid off, but I think from the being able to help and leadership and guide players off the field being close mates with Payne as well probably helped me help him in a small way with just, you know, him being relaxed and going about his business as a captain. I could look after the stuff that he didn't have to worry about. I think all in all, it's it's, it's probably paid off um, over the last couple of years. 
It's one of my strongest memories in cricket was interviewing you on the boundary line, you know, the, the, the stumps interview after the first day of that Dubai test. And uh, you'd bowled through two sessions without taking a wicket, the, taken three in the last session, but, you know, it was 40 plus degrees. It was a long, hot day in the dirt. And I was thinking, you know, whoever they give me to chat to for a couple of minutes is not going to want to be here. And you rocked up with this big beaming smile and I was like don't you want to be inside like why do you want to be out here talking to me and you were like I'm just so happy to be out here and 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 he said oh when the conditions are tough I just want to get the ball in my hand and be the one to try to make a difference and it reminded me of Simon Kadic saying that he liked fielding at short leg because he wanted to get hit a couple of times because it really woke him up and got him into the contest and I was thinking like who is this maniac and like how can you be happy to be here but that late flush of your career you know that getting back into the Australian side and being able to contribute, it must be must be so pleasing for you now, just to, to have had that one that last chance to to get back in and make a difference. It was, I think, yeah, I had probably had a period of time where I, I didn't think I'd get back in. I had that leading up to my when I took the two hundred wickets, but I got back in and played for a short time, and it was probably another another one of those moments that the end got. I, I never looked too far ahead, but I knew. If each performance that I did, if I could, I was only looking at the Ashes. I didn't think of Dubai. I didn't think of the Australian summer. I just thought if I ever get an opportunity again, it's going to be the Ashes in England. That'd be if I can get get on that tour, play a part. That'd be a nice way to finish up. And um, yeah, in the end, I got a lot of extra opportunities in the lead up to that, which I'm very grateful for. But to have those those opportunities at the back end of my career when. I probably in my even in my own mind, I knew they'll only slim, uh, slim opportunities that I would have. But yeah, they'll probably I, I probably got got a lot more chances than at the back end than I than I initially thought I would. Which um, yeah, I'm very grateful for. Yeah, and it was a really beautiful thing, the Edgbaston win, which you were you know, really important to in both innings. I know you didn't take wickets in the second dig, but as Langer said, he's never seen anyone bowl better for no wickets and very unlucky. Set the pressure up, though, weren't you? That was the job. That was the role you were playing. Having done so well in the first innings, getting rid of Joe Root, for example. I mean, returning to the Test eleven in England at Edgbaston, where you should have played um, four years earlier, and being part of a, a historic Australian win, it must be said. You know, winning the first Test of the series, and then, of course, the the, the payoff for that was when uh, Australia win at Manchester. And you know, after four attempts, you're you're on the right side of one of those uh, one of those contests in England. I mean, you know, talk about the perfect sign-off. I mean, I know the final Test match at the Oval, you were playing through injury and people didn't realise that at the time and only in the aftermath of that Test match did they know you had to bowl. Was it a hip flexor tear or something like that, if I recall? Yeah, so yeah, tore my hip flexor pretty much chasing a ball in the first 30 minutes of the, right. <laughs> of, the, of, the of day one. So, But nevertheless, yeah, the fact that you had that edge yeah, and Test earlier in the series right. and were able to play in that huge win, I mean, it, 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 it sort of... It gives you that, I mean, you know, the, the fairy tale would have been that, you know, I suppose you win the final test match, but as close as you can come to it, considering, again, you, you're with a team that had gone through so much adversity in the previous 18 months. It was. It's, um, and, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to be on a series, you know, on the right end of a series in England. Um, like you said, I'd had three previous losses. Um, it'd been a tough place to go. As much as I knew we could have success there over all the years, we probably did as individuals at different stages, but we could never put it together as a team. And I think uh, this time round, that's probably as close as we've come to, to putting it together. And you look, you look back at even on the, not so much the last test, but the the the, um, the third test at Headingley that we lost, it showed how dominant we had been throughout that whole series because England had the, you know, 
pull out pull something special out of the bag to beat us in that and, mm. and then they did brett stokesy was unbelievable so to see how dominant we really were throughout that series showed that we probably warranted the you know um, retaining the the ashes because we probably were the most dominant side throughout and it took a hell of an effort for them to beat us in that test match and in the end it was a sole individual effort so yeah, just to be a part of that whole series, I think it's it's, it's going to be a very special series. We probably hadn't seen one since the 05 Ashes back in the day. We have probably hadn't had a series so closely fought and so tight throughout up until then. Yeah, it was a it was a, it was a nice way to go out, barring the last test, uh, uh, how I, how I played and, and how it finished. But yeah, it was it was a great series to be a part of to to send it off. When we look back at your career the one really interesting thing is that you're the only player who who spans the eras from you know the end of that ponting era through clark and smith and then well into the you know the tim Payne captaincy when there's been so much change over that period of time we look at where you land you know 67 tests is the same number that bill laurie played and and damian martin and then 221 wickets you're up near ray lindwell and garth mckenzie and gillespie craig mcdermott you know the top dozen australian wicket takers of all time you talked about just being so focused on playing when you were playing but now that it's finished and you've settled into first class cricket in, in that postscript are you able to look back at that and you know, have the perspective looking back at that and and you know what satisfaction do you take when you do yeah I do I think it's yeah because like I said as a young kid I just wanted to just play cricket yeah I got to wear the baggy green and you never know a number that you're going to play there's um there's some players that probably, you know, they, they start playing like a Ricky Ponting. You knew he was going to play 100 tests. It was just a given. But I was, yeah, like, like it probably shows over my journey how I've had to change my game and everything is that my game, yeah, I wasn't super talented. I just wanted to win, hated losing and tried super hard. And I think, yeah, to, to end up getting 67 tests, forget the number of wickets, but to be able to play 67 tests, yeah, amazing because yeah, I generally thought I probably wouldn't, you know, 20, 30, you know, see how I go. But to be up there with some of those guys that, you know, you probably just it was, it was a given they were going to play that much cricket to be alongside. Yeah, like you said, I didn't even know it was exactly like with Bill Laurie and Damian Martin to be alongside those guys with Test played. It's um, it's pretty special. So, yeah, it's something I, I still probably don't look at as much because I'm still playing, but it does pop up every now and again. You, I'm playing with a lot of young guys these days and, and they, they, they bring it up because... Yeah, some of them, you know, that I was, I was playing for Australia and a big part of that when they were youngsters, you know, idolising Australian cricket and wanting to play for Australia. So to now play alongside some of those young kids that um, were just, you know, teenagers or young boys when I was playing makes it a little bit more special. But, yeah, it's um, something that um, I'm, I'm very, yeah, grateful for and, yeah, I'm just amazed that I end up, even personally, that I end up playing that many <laughs> test matches. <laughs> Yeah, not just played those test matches, but but leave the game. Uh, as I think it's fair to say, one of the most loved uh, players in modern memory as far as Australian cricketers that have turned out. And uh, and over the last, oh, however long it's been now, 85 minutes, you've shown why. I mean, such a good human being and have been able to make such a massive contribution over such a long period of time. Thanks for spending some time with us today to go through it all. And uh, congratulations on a magnificent international career. Uh, cheers, boys. Thanks very much for having me on. It's always good fun chatting to you too, so... Um, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamanis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. 
This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and thank you, thank you, thank you so much to Peter Siddle who is someone we've wanted to have on the show for a long time. We were waiting for the right moment to do it and we thought that this moment in time when he's, he's put his international career to bed, he's enjoying the, uh, the wind down with first-class cricket uh, and, and the, the nice, not so much exit, but, but enjoying those, the, these last couple of years that we hope he gets to enjoy to their fullest. Um, and on his birthday, after all, the, the, the 10th anniversary of the hat-trick, it all just seemed to come together. This was the time and and uh, what a pleasure it was to have his smiling face on the screen for an hour and a half of our time. Yeah, just to reiterate that, uh, that, that gratitude from us to Pete. He's been so good to us over the years as an interview subject when writing pieces or when sort of doing videos or whatever. But having that opportunity that... The final word has afforded us this platform, I suppose, to talk for a long time. It's a very different kind of interview because it means that you can explore topics that, I don't know, they wouldn't be off limits because he's not that kind of guy. But the fact that we were able to talk about the challenges for him in 2012, the fact that he was able to open up to us about the way that he, his, his game changed and his philosophy around cricket changed when, when his friend Philip Hughes passed away. I mean, these are topics that, yeah, it, it's, it makes me so grateful that we have uh, this at our disposal to have those conversations is what it's all about. And Pete will be bringing that demeanour to the cricket teams that he's in over the next couple of years as well, so watch out for him while you can still see him going around and showing off the bag of tricks that he's learned over the years. Uh, we're, we're winding down for another week, Adam. It's been, uh, it's been a nice long show once again. It's mm. been long for a good reason. Yeah, it's been great having the sort of freedom. I mentioned again the format of the podcast, but making more of the show in, in recent times. It's been quite a gratifying thing for for us uh, through this long stretch where things have been so out of whack with coronavirus and different people experiencing lockdowns at different times. But yeah, we're having a great time making this at the moment. And if you're enjoying what we're doing and these long form interviews, which we're going to do a stack of during the summer, I should say as well. I, I talked, I think the week before last, about us returning to the Daily Show as a result of the Daily Show being there for the Border Gavaskar test matches it'll mean that our weekly show will be far more about interviews and we know that they've you know gone down a treat in the past and i'm hopeful that people would have enjoyed this peter siddle conversation so if you want to hear more of that and want to get involved with what we're doing on patreon uh, this is a great time for it so patreon.com forward slash the final word and we'll of course uh, continue making uh, story time through that stretch as well uh, which has been, yeah, a really fun additional part to the final word offering over the last couple of months. Storytime is our weekend nerd stats dive where we we use the stats and then jump off into interesting stories of, of cricket history and there's, there is such a mine of material, you know, even if we're just talking about test cricket, but then, you know, once we start getting through the, the histories of, of women's cricket and limited overs cricket and domestic cricket overseas and we've ended up in some very... Uh, unexpected places over the last few months yeah and i think the way that numbers can sometimes be i'll be careful how i say this because people like ben jones and Freddie wild might yell at me but the way that numbers are in a scene in cricket right now you know uh, about breaking down every interaction and obtaining small amounts of advantage over sometimes the the, the beauty in the numbers of cricket is that they're 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 sprawling and they're endless and they don't really add to a conclusion but they give you a 
pathway into a, a great story, uh, and that's been the spirit of the conversation. So they're not really jargony conversations on the weekend. We're not talking about the, the, the relative strike rate of one player against another, although we might sometimes, but it's mostly around how do we tell a story or, or an, un, an untold tale of a player of yesteryear and, and give that story a chance to live in this very modern format. That is what we have done and what we'll keep doing. The Daily Show will be short wraps um, at the end of each Test match day to keep people updated who don't have time to watch eight hours of Test cricket like uh, we will <laughs> definitely be making time to do. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be an avalanche of final word coming your way. So stay tuned to the feed. Have a look at the pages. You can find us on the internet in the usual places. The show is released through Bad Producer Productions. It's edited by David Collins, no relation, uh, and it is listened to by you. Thanks for doing that. We'll see you next time. Bye. I had to go about it, write it out and find-